You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 170 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I am. I'm okay, actually. I've had a walk with Procrasty Pup. I've had, got oh. quite a few jobs done. I was on the case this morning to, I don't know if this happens to you. I think it's because I work from home, but you know, there was, there's a whole crew going to a gig. So I get the job of getting the tickets because I can be sitting oh. there poised with my finger on the mouse button at 8.59.59. Oh, so I did that. I managed to secure the tickets. So I am the queen of tickets this morning. So, you know, so far so good. And you? Well what done. Do well you get that done. job of buying the tickets? Uh, not really, no. Hmm. I'm usually Just, not the ticket buyer because people probably realise that they can't rely you'll on forget. me. <laughs> right, you'll forget. <laughs> right, you suddenly realise at one twenty-three that you were supposed to buy the tickets that morning. And it's sold out. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. Yeah, so I'm really the ticket buyer, but I anyway. I need to get a reputation as... No, as that, as being unreliable. Because if you're a reliable yes. ticket buyer, you get the job for the rest of your life. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And um, I learned that because I remember once, this is back in when I was at uni and we were going off to some, I don't know, uni ball or whatever. And uh, we were all getting ready at the same person's house. And I remember one of the guys getting out the ironing board and trying to iron the shirt and and just doing such a terrible job that one of the girls just took over and went, oh, my God, you're hopeless, and took over. And he just sat there sitting there so smug because that was his plan the whole time. Oh, <laughs> see, I, I would have just let him go in his crease shirt. Well, exactly, but she didn't sort of figure mm-hmm. that out. It was only because I was watching it from the other side of the room and and uh, and I could see that he just then put his feet up and realised my job here is done. Then mm-hmm. I went, oh, so that's how you do it. You'd be hopeless <laughs> at it and, and hope someone takes over. <laughs> oh, no. So yes. I've got myself a job for life by being vaguely useful. By being good at it. Oh, by being dear. good at it. The the <sighs> irony, of course, is that, I mean, you know, we were 20 or 19 at the time, uh, but the irony is now that guy's daughter works for me, but he didn't par- he didn't um, parlay that skill to her. She's actually a really good hard worker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. All right, well, you know, let us know, people. Are you the ticket buyer or are yeah. you the person who has others buy tickets for you? <laughs> by, by pretending you're hopeless at it. <laughs> yes. All right, so we have a shout-out for someone today, do we, Al? 
Yes, I do have a shout out for us. I want to give a big shout out to Kerry or Kari. I'm sorry, I'm not exactly sure how exactly to pronounce it at the blog space for the butterflies um, because she has given us a fantastic shout out on her blog post, which is called Five Podcasts to Inspire Your Morning, which I think is lovely. Um, And so you want to be a writer in there. And she says, this is one of those podcasts where I have absolutely no idea how I found it, which is, you know, great. Hi, we love to be discovered randomly which is excellent yeah. um, and she gets she just basically says that the the podcast is a you know a great an interesting listen lots of lots of inspiring and um and great information for writers so anyway i just wanted to say thank you so much for the shout out we love uh love it when we get feedback like that from from bloggers and, and other people out there on the internet so thanks very much yes thank you and i just want to say um that Kari or Kerry says that Space for the Butterflies is a story of motherhood from a slightly hippie working mama who couldn't stop writing if she tried. It's my creativity set out in fabric, yarn and cake. Our family memories and adventures and all the evidence you need that photography is addictive. Goodness me, I'm going to start following this blog. It seems like to have, it seems to have all sorts of things that I would be interested in. Sounds like, it sounds like a creative place for you, Val, with all your various creative things that you're doing. Speaking of which, how are the creative dates going? Yeah, really good. So my latest thing is I learnt Shibori dyeing. Okay. So which is what? <laughs> which is what you, you dye cloth in indigo or whatever, but we just dyed it in, you know, dye. <laughs> and oh, um, it's interesting. I'd never dyed anything before, but you mm-hmm. you roll or fold the cloth into particular patterns and you dye just sort of certain bits of it and because you've rolled or folded it in a certain way it comes out in a certain pattern and uh, it was great fun you know I who knew I that's like tie-dye basically yeah but um a little bit more elegant and a little bit more refined I would say Mm -hmm. not quite tie-dye right okay sorry the the guy across the road only wears (laughs) tie-dye Is this the guy with the? Is this the guy with the kids that you speak of? Regularly? Oh no, that's a different guy. Different guy. The guy diagonally opposite. He he only wears tie dye on, on oh. weekends, and yeah, he's 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 got he's got a whole range of tie dye shirts. Anyway, uh, I digress. You do. <laughs> Sorry about that. Let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, shall we? Yes. All right. So recently. Al, I know I'm really late to the party because uh, this came out, I think, last year. But I finally <laughs> watched <laughs> on Foxtel Rogue One. Oh. You know, the one yeah. of the Star Wars films, yes. not part of the official line of Star Wars, but it's kind of like one of the spin-off ones, and. And I thought it was quite an entertaining movie. I mean, I thought it was good. It was interesting that it was a storyline that was running in parallel with the main Star Wars story. And I thought to myself, you know, there's not only those sorts of movies, obviously those sorts of movies have been inspired by the plethora of um, Star Wars books that are out there that are like fan fiction but they're they're, they're official, they're official mm. fan fiction or mm. official stories that are running in parallel or, or, or um, as spin-offs from the official Star Wars story. And it's – and I thought, you know, there are people who 
write Star Wars books. That's their yes. thing, right? Yes, yes. And how do they get to do that? Because the official ones, you can write, you know, unofficial fan fiction however you like. Hmm. But I know that Lucasfilm is very, very strict in the way that um, – you know, the characters are used, the things that their characters can do, um, the parameters of the Star Wars world. And oddly, I know this because a long time ago I dated a guy who was had a lot of dealings with Lucasfilm, so we were constantly surrounded by Jawas and Yodas and... Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Princess Leia, officially sanctioned Princess Leia... Uh, wigs and costumes and Darth Vader outfits and stuff. No, we never got dressed up in them. Really? How could you resist? (laughs) I I could resist. Um, uh, And, um, but, yeah, thankfully a guy I'm no longer in a relationship with. Oh, what a, we won't go there. But anyway, (laughs) um, and, and the Star Wars and I know that the Star Wars universe is very tightly controlled. But I came across this post um, on Audible Range mm. and it's called, For Some Lucky Fans, Writing a Star Wars Novel is a Dream Come True. And one of those authors is someone you like very much, Chuck oh. Wendig. Oh, Yes. Yes, because you, you really like his blog. and I do like his blog a great deal. And he's written uh, Star Wars Aftermath, one of the Star Wars books. Yes. And he's a big Star Wars fan. And he, it, it actually arose because he wrote a, uh, he posted a tweet on Twitter, obviously, and he just went, Dear Internet, I want to write a licensed Star Wars novel. Please make this happen. <laughs> and okay. then he goes, squeezes Internet hard enough to make wishes fall out. And he ended up writing a Star Wars book. (laughs) See, Twitter, the power of Twitter. I keep telling authors that they need to get themselves on there and start talking to people. And there you go. So now he's written a Star Wars novel. I'm just trying to think about what I can send out to the Twitterverse for to squeeze out of the internet. Yeah, I think so. Like, why not? And um, as he says, this is his quote, as it turns out, I possessed the force for the span of time it took to compose and post that tweet because it worked. (laughs) That's amazing, isn't it? Yes. amazing. Now, Claudia Gray also is a Star Wars novelist and Mm. she got her started as a, she got her start as a fan fiction writer before moving over to young adult novels and and then Star Wars books. So she did start off in fanfic, which is interesting because some people think that, you know, when you start off in fanfic, you kind of stay in fanfic, although Mm. we know that's not the case with, you know, um, Mm -hmm. a a bunch of different examples. But um, yes, that one, uh, she, she became a Star Wars novelist. So it's interesting, isn't it? Like it's, it is. it's a very specific, it's a very specific uh, genre to be in. You're not only yeah. in space opera or sci-fi or whatever. You already have a bunch of characters that already exist. You have very, very clear parameters. You actually have to deal with, um, I think it's called Lucasfilm Story or Star Wars Story Department. Like there's an actual mm. official department that will help you um, understand 
the Star Wars canon that will help you understand, well, no, you can't put the Death Star over here because at that time in the timeline of the universe, (laughs) the Death Star was over there or whatever. So you have to have quite an intimate knowledge of Star Wars as well. Well, It would be a very intense experience, I think, too, because you're not only dealing with with that, Lucasfilms and whatever, you are dealing with the fans. And I know, oh, oh, and they're such fans, you know, like it's they just don't come any fannier really than Mm. Star Wars fans. Well, mind you, we could have the Star Trek conversation here, but let's not. But I think it's Mm. um, it's one of those things where you do, you know, and then you are dealing with the fallout from the fans if you don't get it exactly how the fans would like it as well. And I think that that's, um, I can imagine as an author that that would be incredibly, there's a lot of pressure in that. I think there'd be a lot of pressure in fan expectation to get that right. It would be um, quite an adventure, shall we say. Yeah, absolutely. And um, although Timothy Zahn, one of the uh, authors of the of the recent of um, the most recently re- the most recently released Star Wars book, Thrawn, uh, he says at its deepest core, there is really very little difference between writing a Star Wars novel and writing any other novel. In both cases, the goal of the storyteller is to create an exciting saga with characters the readers care about, put in some twists and turns and surprises, and then bring it all to a satisfying conclusion. Mm. If it succeeds on all those levels, then I've done my job. Right. So, well, that's go. good. Well, there's no so, pressure there then. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure in this. I mean, the, the, the skills are clearly the same, but the, 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 the knowledge that you would need of the Star Wars universe, I think, is massive. Mm. All right. Let's move on then to something a little bit different because the talk of the town at the moment is Paula Hawkins' new novel. And, of course, Paula Hawkins wrote the runaway, pardon the pun, bestseller, The Girl on the Train, which sold bazillion, million, gazillion, I don't know, like that's not official, lots but of copies, <laughs> lots of zeros. I think it was 20 million and yeah. books. Um, and then subsequently uh, was made into the movie with Emily Blunt. And so super successful, but her latest novel is called Into the Water, and that's just out. But did you know that, and I'll put a, a link, there's an interview with Paula Hawkins in Long Reads. We'll put that in the show notes, which, of course, mm-hmm. you can find at So You Want to Be a Writer au. But did you know that she started writing under a pseudonym romantic comedy novels? I did not know that. Yes. No, so I did s- not. Her pseudonym was Amy Silver. Oh. And she wrote rom-com. And so she yeah, she wrote a bunch of rom-com basically. And uh, the first, rom- interestingly, the first rom-com that she wrote, as in a novel, not not a not a movie, um, the first that she wrote, um, the publisher actually gave her the basic outline. So she already had that to start with. So she was kind of, um, she didn't have to come up with the, the plot, so to speak. And she said, it never really felt like me, though. Romantic mm. comedy was not my genre at all. 
As I went through writing these books, they kept getting darker and darker and more and more terrible things kept happening to everybody in the books. <laughs> it was obvious that what I tended toward was much a, was a much darker thing. That's the thing I like to read. That's the sort of story on the news that I'm fascinated by. Really, romantic comedy was always a non-starter for me. Interesting. Interesting that she was commissioned to write rom-com by a publisher as well. Like, yeah. just, that is a, I'd, that's a really interesting way of starting out in publishing. I haven't really, like, it's you sort of hear one. about it with some of the, you know, kids, like they'll, uh, um, with children's fiction in some, in some cases, some of those very long-standing series that you see are, you know, organised by the publisher and written by a whole bunch of different authors under one pseudonym. Like even mm. the, like back in the day, the Trixie Belden books, you know, started out with one author and then she didn't want to write them anymore and so the uh, publisher took over the Trixie Belden thing and they were all written yes. under, a, a one, you know, other authors writing it under one name. Um, mm. But I yeah, I didn't realise that that happened with um, rom-com as well. I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah, they obviously have a formula and they know what formula works and they just need the writer to flesh it out and fill in the mm-hmm. blanks. Mm-hmm. But isn't it also interesting that it wasn't until she started writing the thing that really was her that it took off for her as well. I think that's, yes. that's a really interesting lesson in that. I think sometimes, um, you know, we can write the thing that we think is going to sell, but it's not till you write the thing that is really actually you that yes. you create that work that stands out, that's different. Yep, that really, really resonates with you mm. as opposed to writing the thing that you think that people want or that the publisher wants. You yeah. and I both know authors who they're writing the thing that they want, that the the they're writing the book that they think um, – What's what am I trying to say? They're writing the book that they think they should be writing. Yeah, as a well, book, I was as that opposed writer. to the I, book. I've been that author of writing the thing that I thought I sh- that, that I thought made sense for me in the sense of you know writing romance stuff because it made sense to me as someone who'd come out of women's magazines who understood you know mm. audiences and understood you know different uh, targets and different lines and things. It made sense to me from that perspective, um, mm. but it wasn't until I started writing the random idea about map makers that I had never, you know, that I'd ignored for six months, that I actually had a book that was really a thing. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, um, and look what's happened. Another runaway success. Well, that's the thing. Mm. I think you just basically like, it's, it's very easy to ignore your best idea if it doesn't fit your current plan in a funny mm. way, um, but sometimes it's not until you actually try that thing that you've never tried that you cannot even imagine how it will work. It's not till you do that that you actually come up with with the, the thing that's going to actually yeah. work for you, yeah. So Absolutely. not that I put myself in the same, you know, category as Paula Hawkins, but I'm just saying that I think it's a, it is very, very easy to ignore, you know, that nagging idea because you can't work out how you would even go about doing it. Um, so maybe yeah. it's that one that you can't even work out how you would go about doing it. Maybe it's that one that you should be doing because that might yes. be the that's, – that's the one. That's the one that's nagging at you. That's interesting. All right, let's move on to a post uh, that is on CNBC's Make It – blog or make it column and it's called six unusual habits of the world's most creative people and 
yeah, they're not that unusual, actually. They're actually not that unusual. You're telling me this is clickbait, right? Okay. <laughs> I mean, okay. it starts off with a couple of examples of how Steve Jobs. I don't know if you've seen the movie of Steve Jobs. Um, uh, with Michael Fassbender, but he, there's some bizarre seat, uh, scenes of him sitting with his feet in the toilet and he just what? like, I know it's really strange. Um, yeah, I don't really get it. But anyway, uh, and there, there's is, this, yeah, yeah it's, it's while he waited for new ideas. And there's, um, there's another guy, Yoshiro Nakamatsu, the inventor of the floppy disk, who would deep dive underwater until his brain was deprived of oxygen. Then he would write his ideas on an underwater sticky pad. Now, okay, there are a couple of examples, but actually the list of uh, unusual habits that that are in this post are not that unusual, but they're good and that's why I've included them. Okay. So number one, wake up early. Now, that's not something that I necessarily do, but... Yeah, but number two, and I do think this is a good one, and actually I should do more of it because when I do it, I get ideas. Mm. And that is quite simply exercise frequently. Mm. Exercise frequently. I just mm. think that, the, I, you know, I, I think that it should almost be um, just an essential part of your creative process. Even mm. that, I don't, and that doesn't have to be re- brutal, really sweaty exercise. Could just been going for a walk, right? Yep. Number three, stick to a strict schedule. And I know sometimes that's not possible because life gets in the way. But if at least if you can block out time, I think that yeah. is so important. Just the and routine. The routine just is so important. The routine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Number four, I like this. Keep your day job. Mm. Mm. They mm. say creativity flourishes when you're creating for yourself and no one else. So, But creativity becomes more difficult when your livelihood de- uh, depends upon what you create, which mm. is interesting. But when mm. you're starting out, I think that makes sense. And that ties into what we were just saying before. You need to write the book that's really you and mm. where you're just writing it for yourself. Of course, you need to bear in mind that, you know, there are certain things that are more t- – trendy than than others but still when you're starting out write the book that you really need to write mm. um and this one this one you'll like because you really espouse this learn to work anywhere anytime mm. so important right absolutely um, I'm, I'm doing a lot of mm-ing and nodding here because a lot of these <laughs> things are stuff that you and i talk about all the time like over yeah, and over and unusual. over <laughs> No, they're not. But they. But I think. I think why they people think they're unusual is because they're the antithesis of what people think creativity is. People yeah. think creativity is sitting down, you know, with your arms outstretched, awaiting the muses, you know, visitation, or you know, sitting yeah. in a garret in total isolation, waiting for this, you know, great burst of creative magic to come upon you. And the reality of it is is just that, you know, that concept of of busy for two busy begets busy so the busier you are the more your brain is working the more it's firing on all cylinders and and when I say busy I don't necessarily mean you know 24 7 running around doing all that sort of stuff but just that notion of keeping like of having that day job and having to fit things in you you learn to work when you can and where you can and I think that that is a really important lesson for most people on a you know who 
who, who want to get things finished. I think if you just want to waft about, then fine, you know, do that. That's great. But if you actually yeah. want to finish and actually get a work complete of any kind, whether you be tying ropes, whether you be, <laughs> you know, singing, dancing, writing songs, writing novels, whatever it is that you're doing, if you want to finish it, you have to actually get in there and do the work. And, and this notion that creativity is not work, I think is the other thing that I find really interesting that, you know, like it's just going to be fun all the time. But, you know, at the end of the day, the people who, who are, um, are really producing amazing things and doing amazing things are working so hard Mm. all the time across a whole range of different areas, not necessarily just only on their you know, thing, whatever their thing may be, but they're yeah. doing a whole lot of different things, and it, the, the and and it's and it's work. Creativity is work, I think. Yep, absolutely, mm. I one hundred percent agree. And um, I, you'll also love the sixth one, which is learn that creative blocks are just procrastination. And mm. I love this quote from Jody Piku. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Do you? No, I think it's Piku, but I. I, Piku? I yeah, don't quote yeah. me because I just okay. I'm no good. Yes. Uh, okay. So uh, she says, uh, I don't believe in writer's block. Think about it. When you were blocked in college and had to write a paper, didn't it always manage to fix itself the night before the paper was due? Writer's block is having too much time on your hands. If you have a limited amount of time to write, you just sit down and do it. You might not write well every day, but you can always edit a bad page. You can't edit a blank page. Yeah, that's and that's fantastic. And you know, like it's it's interesting because uh, like a, a shout out at the moment to Shane Webb, who's a he's an Australian actor, singer, writer, director. You know, all of the different things, and he's in yeah. my community, and um, he's taken it upon himself at the moment to uh, he basically sends me his word count on Twitter every day. He tweets me and tells me what his what his what his word count is. He's just <laughs> I'm just quietly here as a sounding board, you know, cheering him on. Um, mm. but he's working through the through the boot camp and he's doing like sort of fifteen to thirty minute uh, bursts, trying to fit them in every single day. And he's just the progress, and it's just not necessarily about word counts. I know people have gone on at us in the past about the fact that we bang on about word counts. It's not about that. What it is about is this: it's that tangible evidence of progress, and yeah, I can absolutely. see him progressing, and he's going, and he's he's doing it every day. And I'm just, yeah, you know what? Go Shane! I am cheering you on, yeah. and I, you know, I wish you the best of luck with it because I think that um, I'm it's I'm loving the fact that you're taking it into your own hands and you're doing it. And I th- I love to see that. I find it inspiring inspiring from my end too because I'm like well Shane wrote 602 words in 15 minutes today Alison how many have you edited Alison you know because you can get a lot of inspiration from what other people are doing and procrastination is like if you sit down and do it you'd be amazed Mm. at what actually comes out whereas like I mean I found that with my edits I'm just I put it off and put it off and then I sit down and go why did I put this off? I actually enjoy this. Why am I? Why am I so? I think I've got second novel syndrome. I think it's taken me mm. six books, but I've got second novel syndrome. But anyway, oh. I digress. Um, but no, yes, no, actually, I, no. On that point, ju- just do digress and explain to people what second novel syndrome is. Oh, I think I've just got that because I'm. I'm so second novel syndrome is where you write something, um, your first book comes out and it's great and everyone loves it. And then you need to write a second one. And the second one comes with there's a couple of different things attached to it. So often when you write your first novel, you, you, 
we talked a little bit, you know, before about the fact that, you know, there's, that you don't, it's a, there's a real freedom in being, in writing whatever you want. Um, and I think that, um, you know, when you still, it was discussing contests of still keeping your day job and writing whatever you want, but there's just also that notion of when you're working on your first novel, you can have years and years and years to do it. And people do take years in, in many cases. Um, you have years and years and years to do it. You produce something and, you know, everybody loves it. And then comes the crashing reality that you have to do it again because that's yeah. what career is that is what makes you a career writer is the pot is yep. the, the is the ability to do it again um and so you know i've written uh, i've now written six children's novels four in the mm-hmm. mapmaker chronicles series the first book in the Adaban cipher series um and i'm now editing the second book and I'm putting, and this is this pressure comes only from myself because this is just the kind of girl that I am. But um, mm. I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself to uh, the first book in this series. I think is is really good. I really really like it, and my publisher really really likes it. And I want to. I just want this. I want the second one to be just as good. I want the second one to be mm. amazing, actually, because this is the this is where it all comes together. This is the end of the story. This is you know all of this kind of stuff. This you know wraps up a whole lot of stuff and. I think you just put a lot of pressure on yourself to to make it. It's never going to be as perfect as you want it to be. And I think mm. that it's sometimes getting over that can be as much of a challenge as anything, that ability to go, well, I think what I've done here is is good or, you know, like there's a – there's self-doubt in a writer even after six books, after 30 books, after 50 books, sure. I imagine. Um, yeah. So I think it's just that. I think I'm sitting here trying to make this thing perfect and whether or not that's possible, I just, you know, it's not. It's never going to be mm. perfect. Mm-hmm. So. There you go. Anywho, right. that's where we're up to. <laughs> yes, that's where we're up to. Okay, so um, thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's move on then to our giveaway this week, shall we? Oh, let's. This is really fun. We've got two copies, but you only get to win one. You don't win two. <laughs> but we get two copies of Julie Goodwin's Essential Cookbook to give away. And there are over 300 recipes every kitchen needs from Australia's favourite home cook. And, of course, Julie Goodwin was the f- winner of the first season of MasterChef and has gone on to, you know, even bigger and better things. She's released books. She's had, you know, a, a number of different sponsorships and endorsements and her profile has skyrocketed. So I've seen the book and I, even though I'm not a cook, at all uh it's a great book and I love just flicking through it and imagining Mm -hmm. that I would cook those things but I'm sure there are (laughs) other people out there who will actually cook them and if you want to win your own copy of Julie Goodwin's essential cookbook then please go to writerscenter.com.au slash win now entries close on the 15th of May so make sure you get in before then writerscenter.com .com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step-by-step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book success. 
You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how ebooks and audiobooks will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our on demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash publishing. Val, are we ready for the word of the week? So ready, Val. So ready. Okay. So ready. Have you heard of this word? It's ludic, as in L-U-D-I-C, ludic. No, I have not. Now, it sounds I have not heard like this word. it's going to be part of the word like ludicrous, right? You know, mm. that word, ludicrous, mm. or the rapper, ludicrous. Uh, but ludic, <laughs> this, I think it's a cool word, and it means spontaneously playful. Oh. And I feel that it very accurately encapsulates the behaviour of my cat, Rocky, because right. he's always ready to play at a moment's notice. Yes, right. spontaneously playful. Rocky is ludic. Unless uh, he's un- unlike my other cat, Rex, who only seems to want to play at very specific times of day under very specific circumstances. So Rocky, Rex is not ludic, but Rocky is. Sounds like my children. <laughs> They're ludic? Well, my younger one is. He would be. I would describe him as ludic, but I think that my older one is probably more like your cat Rex. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I always joke about the fact that I'm raising Buzz and Woody, you know, from Toy Story, because they are fully like the younger one is Buzz and the older one is Woody and they're hilarious. And you look at the fact that you've got these two people in your house who are totally different and you think, what happened there? <laughs> So you've you got two what? cats. After recently kids. chatting at length with your older one, I think he is a bit like Rex. <laughs> oh, he's so, he's so, so born 48, you know, like he's oh just like, yeah. and my younger yes. one is just, is hilarious. He would just, he's ready for, you know, like a roll around the backyard whenever you want. It's just. There you <laughs> go. The younger funny. one is ludic. Yeah, All right. <laughs> Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Okay. Who have we got? Yes, something a bit different. Brenna Hassett is an archaeologist. And here's the interesting thing. So she specialises in using clues from the human skeleton to understand how people lived and died in the past. But she has written this book. And when I saw this book, I was like, oh, I've got to get this book. I don't don't know why, but something about it captured my imagination. And it's called Built on Bones – 15,000 years of urban life and death. And I read the back and read about how Brenna is really into (laughs) dental anthropological techniques. (laughs) So she's into teeth. You know, right. my eyebrows a, are somewhere up near the ceiling at this point, even though I'm not saying anything. Right, I'm listening intently. Yeah, and so an archaeologist who's into teeth, and I thought, how in the world is she going to make this interesting, or how this she in the world is she going to bring this book to life? Considering you know it's about mm. um, ancient Dead civilizations teeth. Mm. and teeth. But she manages to do that. So I thought I have to talk to this woman. So here we go. Here's my chat with Brenna Hassett. Thanks so much for joining us today, Brenna. Thanks for having me. Now, this this is an unusual book, (laughs) Built on Bones, 
15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death. Now, it's pretty intriguing. It certainly has an intriguing title and it's got a very intriguing subject matter. But for those readers who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Uh, It's basically about what it means for us as humans to have changed the way we live over the last 15,000 years. We've made some very big changes going from sort of hunter-gatherers, which we did for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, to being a 50% urban society and will be 60% by 2030. You know, cities are sort of not only our future, but also kind of right now. And because my expertise is looking at the bodies of people in the past, I've sort of taken that and uh, tried to look at how cities have actually physically changed us. Now, you're an archaeologist who specializes in teeth. Is that right? (laughs) Yes, that is a real job you can have. (laughs) (laughs) When I read that, I thought, I have to talk to this woman. Now, first of all, take us back to when and why did you get interested in archaeology in the first place? Well, I wasn't I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do uh, for a degree. So I, I sort of ended up taking quite a lot of classes at uh, you know, in America. We have these community colleges. So you can you can take everything from, you know, underwater basket weaving to <laughs> physical anthropology. <laughs> So, I, I guess underwater basket weaving was full. So, um, so I ended up taking this uh, anthropology class and it, it talked about, you know, the, the different um, Neanderthals and Homo erectus and how you could use their skulls and, and bones to actually see the differences in, the, in these species. And I was just hooked. I thought that was the most interesting thing I'd ever heard. So, so I ended up just, just following that a long way down the road. <laughs> Yeah, right. So were you actually vaguely interested in this kind of thing or did you literally stumble into the class and find that you were intrigued by it? Um, I th- yeah, I think the, the, class, uh, the class probably <laughs> fulfilled a credit that I needed. And I just, I wasn't, um, I didn't think of myself who uh, sort of someone who was interested in biology and science yeah. when I started out. Um, I, I always thought, you know, I'd like to do something kind of artsy. And um, much to my surprise, here I am with a PhD in dental anthropology. <laughs> so. Yeah, right. I mean, imagine if underwater basket weaving wasn't full, right? <laughs> It'd be a very different book. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So why teeth? Because archaeology, I mean, we all know what Indiana Jones gets up to and archaeology can span so many different types of work, but why teeth? Well, um, I, I will point out that, um, you know, I don't actually chase golden idols, though sometimes <laughs> some of my samples are coated in gold, so they do look quite shiny. Right. Um Teeth are teeth are amazing. So I'm I'm very much team teeth. So you'll have to <laughs> forgive my my sort of enthusiasm here. But um, teeth are wonder they're little fossils that live in your mouth. So um, I think anyone who you know was once a kid or has had kids knows you've got um, two sets of teeth and they grow. You know the, you've got the first set which you have your baby teeth or your milk teeth, and um, you know they're they're growing while you're quite young. And then you've got your second set which comes out as an adult. So the second set, your adult teeth, um, the very front bit of your very front teeth that was forming when you were about one years old. 
So all of the things that happen when you were one years old, the, the water you drank, the, the type of geology you lived on, lots of the sort of actual um, signs and sort of chemicals have got into your teeth, which have perfectly fossilized for someone like me to come along, take, take a couple lasers and some saws and... <laughs> Yeah. And we can work out, um, you know, all sorts of things about how people lived in the past, which is, of course, the big question. That's what that's what we all want to know. And the teeth are absolutely perfect for this, because um, as everyone knows, you know, if you if you break an arm or something, it's not great, but it, it will knit back together. And I think everyone knows what happens if you chip a tooth. Yes. It doesn't it doesn't get any better. So um, that same quality is actually what we can use sort of uh, as dental anthropologists to look at teeth from uh, not even just our own species, but from species far back in the past to see how we lived and uh, grew in that childhood period when our teeth were forming. And I can see how that would be interesting, you know, the way people developed what they ate, where they lived, that sort of thing. But this book, as you have mentioned, really does focus around the development of cities and the way people settled and the way people lived or why people settled and lived that way. This nexus between cities and teeth, <laughs> uh, what made you want to write? <laughs> yeah, what made you want to write this book? Well, a lot of my research is actually about um, child health because teeth grow when you're a child. So they record kind of um, a little bit like tree rings. If you're familiar with the idea that trees, yeah. you know, you chop it down, you look at the center, you've got little skinny rings where the tree had a bad year and fat rings where the tree had a sort of great year. There's a, a pretty similar function that works in teeth. And what, a lot of my research has been looking at um, the teeth of children who are just at the edge of that, that transition for when we decided uh, to stop hunting and gathering and start sort of settling down. And as we slowly developed things like farming. So, you know, the big question for me through a lot of my research has been, what does that do to you? Is it, you know, is, uh, do you see inside the teeth sort of signs that um, farming was even a good idea? So that's, that's actually kind of how I sort of got into this. And it turns out that there's a lot more to, um, you know, uh, getting to where we are now than just developing farming and things. So um, because I do, I do uh, look at other aspects of our bodies and bones from the past, I tried to bring together not just the teeth, but all sorts of other things, the sort of um, lumps on skulls, the diseases we get, all of these, all of these clues that are sort of left CSI style in our bodies um, to try to bring them all to bear to see exactly what um, our strange adaptations have been doing to us. Now, when you're writing a book about a lot of the stuff, as you have said, ha could have happened 15,000 years ago or, or a really long time ago, uh, it's, it, when you were approaching writing this book, did you have a clear idea, oh, I'm going to write about it chronologically or, or a clear idea of how you were going to structure it and, and did it turn out the way you anticipated <laughs> well, I, I don't think anything in the history of writing has ever gone quite um, as anticipated. But um, the 
what really helped, I think, is that because I come from a sort of scientific background, you know, we, we do, we are forced to write very tedious, boring scientific articles, which have got sort of quite a lot of structure to them. So yes. for me, it did help to have, um, I essentially had chapter titles, uh, which uh, may or may not notice in the book are actually song titles, but they, they started off as sort of proper chapter titles and morphed from there. Um, but those those chapter titles w worked as a sort of scaffold for me. They sort of outlined each concept that I wanted to talk about. And so from there, actually, it was more like sort of writing writing an essay to each topic. If you think about it, um, it sounds a little bit horrible and, and like a school <laughs> sort of project. I actually really enjoyed it. It's sort of, you know, for, for all of, you know, 13 topics or whatever, just um, write to your heart's content everything yeah. you have to say about this topic. Right. Well, I think that describing them as essays really it doesn't do it, uh, it, it does it a disservice because these are not essays. These are <laughs> funny chapters that are packed with information and you obviously have a sense of humor <laughs> because um you know you kind of I'm just reading it and I'm kind of reading about you know bones and neanderthal neolithic periods and stuff like that and then I ha I'm reading and I, I find myself laughing out loud and I have to read a something for our listeners um, and it's where you're talking about a paleo diet bar because paleo is all the rage, at, at, you know, these days, isn't it? Paleo diet. Of course. And you've written about this paleo diet bar. It promises me optimal nutrition for a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. It is gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, dairy-free, preservative-free, and fiber and protein-rich. The presence of joy is not mentioned, but I think one could sensibly infer its absence from the litany above. <laughs> and no, so you, you, you're certainly a scientist with a sense of humor, and not only that, you have um, the book is peppered with footnotes, which – uh, a lot of people don't read, but they need to read yours because they're hilarious. So, um, <laughs> do you um, did is did, were you planning to write a, a a book with this much humor in it? Was it something that you added later, or you just naturally like this? I think um, I, I have to say that um, the vast majority of my, my poor friends who got drafted in, read my book, read my book, um, <laughs> the, the main response I got, it's just like talking to you, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I hope is a good thing. Uh, one friend did say it's even better than talking to you because I can actually close the book. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. Oh but, um, you know, I... I think it's, there's so many, I'm really interested in the work I do, in the research I do. And um, also, I, I'm a, a very big proponent of, of people finding out that, you know, science is made of people that we are, you know, we are human beings too. And half of the, the sort of fun part of having a job like mine, where I go running off to Thailand or Greece or wherever it is, wherever the next project is, you know, half of it is, is getting stuck in a traffic jam behind a herd of goats. You know, there's, there are a lot of these experiences. And I think, um, you know, I think if I, if I was to be too, too uh, serious about it, I'd get bored and I'd stop writing. So yes, yes. it was only ever going to have my, my wittier sides or my less than wittier sides, depending on the, <laughs> on the case. So can you give us a little bit of a time 
line uh, where when you thought, oh, I'm going to write a book about teeth and cities and when you – your research period and then your writing period. <laughs> well, I, I had a, a funny sort of take on this because more or less, um, you know, I've been – most of my professional career has sort of been – the research period for this book. It's, it's stuff that, um, I like to tell people that, you know, occasionally I give talks. If I, if I do the entire book talk, it's basically a free masters as far as I can tell. Um, you know, it's cramming a lot of information into sort of, but, um, so the, the preparation really, I guess I've been doing, you know, as part of my professional research career, the writing was quite funny. So I um, was working at the Natural History Museum in London, which is a, a grand old edifice. But um, because I'd, I'd sort of just about agreed I'd, um, to write this book, I'd, I'd finally had the chat with the publisher. They'd said, write go ahead and a piece of paper had shown up with a contract. And I said, well, actually I have a day job. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, it, I actually took a series of career breaks. So I had about a four month career break in the summer, um, which was uh, because, you know, we, we like to multitask. Um, I was, I was off on a dig. So quite a lot of this book got written about an hour and a half from the Syrian border in Southeastern yeah. Turkey. Yes. Um, which it was quite a dramatic period. I think the book sort of um, yeah. picks up a couple of these experiences, but um, I wasn't I wasn't intending. But the thing is, is that archaeological digs start very early in the morning because it gets so hot. It got up to fifty degrees. I mean, it was just oh, ridiculous. Uh, yes, and and then you have to dig in that. Oh. <laughs> but um, because because I was um, so sort of jazzed up to to go off and and dig this site, which was very exciting and very scientifically interesting, I was actually getting up around five, um, which is the only time the place was quiet. Because otherwise, you know, there's sixty undergrads running around uh, having their their undergrad dramas. <laughs> Yeah, right. and, uh, and visiting dignitaries coming and there's there's just always something going on so that five o'clock in the morning staring out at um, the plains around the Turkish city of Sirt was just a, it was actually quite a nice writing environment yeah. <laughs> and then um, yeah once I had to I went back to work after that but I actually finished off the book in a, in a pretty intense burst at the British Library, which is a, a wonderful institution, which is a, must be responsible for all sorts of writers actually getting things done. But um, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, sort of setting off every day, refusing to speak to anyone and generally being an unpleasant person for a whole month. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, yeah, overall, I guess it took about two years. But I, I think, you know, lots of ideas were percolating in the background. And for the research, really, most of the research I had the background already. It was it was just sort of a question of freshening up. So I think I got away lightly on that one. <laughs> right, right. So when you did your month at the British Library, what percentage of the book had you got up to? Were you like up to eighty percent or whatever? Like, yeah. What, how Here. much did you oh, have we were, to go? We were we were at about we were at about thirty five. Oh. Um, so. So it, it did. It was it was more than a month, obviously, that I took to to finish off the rest of it. But um, it was the it was the month that I spent at the British Library that I think broke the back of it. So I wow. still had another month or so after that. So I must have probably written something absolutely ungodly, like sixty thousand words in that month, uh, which is just wow. that was. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything else. I was. Yes. I, I just about remembered to shower. That's <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, but. 
Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us how did you um, get your book deal? It's just that I can't imagine going to a publisher and saying, hey, I'm really into teeth and <laughs> would you like a book about, you know, how teeth – um, how the teeth of humans has, can tell us about the, the, the building of cities. So how did this happen? Yes, very, very few people, it turns out, come up to you and say, tell us more. We think a popular <laughs> teeth is a thing. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's never right. happened it's, in the history of ever. I'm sure it'll be the next Eat, Pray, Love. Yes, let's do it. Yeah, yeah no, I think, yeah, not quite that kind of print run. But um, what uh, I think I, I had a very funny, lucky um, path to publishing. And I think that's probably because my other hat um, on top of the sort of actual science of teeth is um, an organization called Trailblazers. And we celebrate women in the earth sciences. So we do all sorts of fun and crazy things, but it's, it's sort of a science communication uh, type role. So we try and go out to the public and say, did you know that there were women archaeologists in the 1700s and they got so excited about archaeology, they climbed the pyramids in their underwear. You know, there are all sorts of these fun little stories. So I, I do quite a lot of um, what you would sort of called outreach or engagement. And I think because of that, um, because of that sort of link into people who are really keen to talk about science that's that's actually how the publisher found me so they um the I'm, I'm with bloomsbury sigma so the amazing editor jim there um he actually has his ear to the ground for people who are talking about science and and writing engagingly about it and so i had a blog and all these sorts of things so people were able to read little mm -hmm. vignettes of kind of what I'm interested in, what I write. So I didn't come to it sort of, um, you know, with a, with a, a CV in hand and here are my, my top scientific publications. Um, mm -hmm. it, it ended up being a much more organic, um, sort of, uh, he was looking for people who were writing. We eventually, uh, met, there was, there was, it was actually at a, the launch of the label. So there was probably too much champagne. Um, <laughs> and we decided we should meet again with less champagne to, to discuss <laughs> the world of teeth. And it was something, because I think the book uh, was something that I'd thought about for, for quite a long time, possibly as like a professional, you know, academic textbook type thing. Yeah. But the opportunity to write it with um, gossipy footnotes, and I just went, yeah, <laughs> much more fun. Definitely. So now that you've written it, has it, has it whet your appetite to write more in this vein? I, I think so. I think, um, uh, you know, it's a bit, um, it's all just come out. So actually, of course, I stopped writing um, sometime in November or something. That was the last edits I saw. So so I feel like I haven't really done anything for about uh. you know, six months or whatever. Um, so for me, yeah, I'm starting to think about, you know, what, what comes next. And yeah. I, I'm hopeful that uh, some, something good will will appear. Um and, you know, as, as, as long as everybody goes out and buys the book, they'll give me a chance to write another one. <laughs> so so what's, my what's mulling around in your brain? What do you think might be next? Well, I think, um, so I, you know, I am so interested in what I do for a living. So, you know, I, I've got a pretty narrow focus, but I just, I can't believe everyone doesn't want to be an archaeologist, doesn't <laughs> want to know 
all of this cool stuff about how we evolved and where we're going. So um, I, I have a couple thoughts. Some of them are um, uh, along the lines of my, my take on the paleo diet bar <laughs> that you, you mentioned earlier. Um, there, there are some sort of tropes about evolution that get trotted out, you know, that every time someone says, well, you evolved to do this, my, my little scientist hackles go up and I say, oh, that's... <laughs> That's not how science works. So, so um, I have got some thoughts about some of these little evolution myths that I, I might want to make the broader public aware that are, are actually myths. But um, it's Can all, you it's tell all us one just out of interest? Well, I think one of the ones that um, I think about sometimes is this um, uh, the, the running, um, paleo running, if you want to call it paleo running, um, when people sort of barefoot running, oh, yeah, more or less. Running. Yeah, so um, the, the idea that there are particular strikes um, of your foot, you know, when your foot hits the ground, it goes this way, it goes this way, and um, that very elite runners sort of run in X style or Y style, and there are groups um, who aren't sort of modern, Western, civilized, well, not civilized, but um, sort of Westernized um, groups who have lifestyles that involve a lot of running and long distance running. And how do those people run? Is it more efficient? Is that how we ran in the past? So there's lots of research and people people sell all these wonderful things like, um, you know, special shoes that you can wear barefoot to run in and things. Yeah. And um, there's, there's quite a lot of, um, it's very interesting research and there's actually great science around that. But the, the story of how we run and how you're meant to run has been rudely interrupted by our invention of sneakers. Mm. So, so there's actually, there's all sorts of things, you know, we, uh, where, where people say, you know, well, we evolved to do this, we evolved to do that. And you can actually come back and say, well, yes, but we evolved to evolve out of that mm. <laughs> In the same way that sort of, you know, you, you can say we don't necessarily need to have a paleo diet because a paleo diet is just eating whatever you can. <laughs> so yes. that's pretty much the whole point is don't starve to death. That's the point. Um, so if you applied it, in, you know, in the future, I, I don't see why, you know, a Snickers bar isn't paleo diet. It's, it sure. fits in evolutionally with the theme. So yes. there's, there's just those little those little scraps and things that are floating around my head right now. And they're not they're not very well developed. <laughs> Great. So you are obviously very passionate about your career and what you do. Um, in your career, what have been some of the most interesting either discoveries or experiences that you just kind of make you go, wow? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the experiences, I mean, the experience of doing archaeology is almost always an adventure, um, mostly because it's an underfunded science. And so you end up sort of going off to some glorious exotic place and staying in a tent. You know, you're not, you're not in a hotel. Um, so, I mean, I've had any number of, of what seem like either sort of privations or, or terrible, uh, you know, living conditions, but actually they, they turn out to be such wonderful experiences. So I was in Thailand, um, years ago for a survey project an archaeological survey, you essentially just walk very long straight lines and look at the ground, looking for, you know, bits of pots and things. I mean, it, it just sounds beyond tedious. So we, we weren't down by the beach. We weren't in lovely island Thailand. Yes. We were up in the agricultural fields, walking in straight lines, hot, humid. Oh, and wow. um, and there were there were um, those little red biting ants. Oh, my God. Mm. They're they, they fall out of the trees down on your clothes. And now that is not a, 
And so you, you think, oh, my God, you know, this is this is actually you're starting as you know, you're out in the middle of your field thinking, geez, this is the wrong field to get into. But then um, but then it was Songkran, the water festival. Uh-huh. And the water festival in Thailand is amazing. So they, the sort of as a, a sort of purif- a spring purification ritual, they they put a little bit of um, pure clay on you, and then they pour a little bit of water over the top. But as um, many backpackers and other travelers will know, um, essentially once the teenagers get hold of the super soakers, it turns into a much bigger festival. Uh-huh. So you know, there we all are in our truck going back, um, going back from site, going back to this time it was a hotel, so that was quite good. Um, and everyone, the whole, everyone on the street is out. They're in their cars. They've got hoses. They're laughing. They're sort of giggling. They're, they're having water fights on the back of their cars. You know, we're soaked. So we actually got the project to buy us some little squirt guns just oh. so we could, you know, just and so, you know, it's, it's just, um, you know, it turned out to be an absolutely terrific experience and you just don't get to, um, there are not many jobs where you get to go and, and say, spend a month or spend a couple months in a different country, um, sort of experiencing life there. So I, I, I love that part of it, actually, particularly. I always think that um, I have got very lucky there. So where is your next dig or your next project? Well, um, I'm still very much excited about uh, the big project that's in southeastern Turkey. Uh, we, we do kind of have to make sure that the situation on the ground is sort of yeah. secure enough. To, to go back, um, but I think there's um, there's huge scientific interest, um, and uh, so and because I work on the actual skeletons, I, I do some digging. Um, I'm sure the students would argue that they do most of the digging, mm-hmm. um, but the uh, the material that we've excavated so far will continue to analyze that. So even if we don't go back and put our shovels in the dirt, we'll have um, quite a lot of sort of uh, lab based analysis. So Hopefully, um, quite a lot of uh, trips to Turkey in the future to uh, enjoy seaside fish and rocky restaurants, which I'm mm. quite keen on. Fantastic. So let's just come back to the writing for a second. Now, you said you kind of had your chapter headings and then treated them when you came to write them almost like a series of separate essays, although, as we've mentioned, they're way more than just essays. Um, When you did that, though, within each chapter, did you um, have any kind of structure in that did you think, oh, every chapter should open with this or every chapter should um, include a story about X or or whatever? How did you actually approach each chapter on a more granular level? I think um, I, I suspect that I am just not very professional about writing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I think um, so. I, I do have several friends who are, uh, who write fiction or you know other science writers, and they really do seem to have these wonderful detailed sort of um, you know like sort of bullet point outlines for for sort of what they're going to get through. And I, what I tend to do is um, start off. Uh, and I, I didn't intend to do it in the beginning, but I realized I'd done it for about two chapters. So I, I ended up continuing the pattern, which was to introduce sort of an anecdote 
from my own experience. So that that description of the paleo diet bar, I think, comes as part of me being in Sirt in Turkey and, and not anywhere near a sort of health food emporium to buy one of these bars. But starting off with a little bit of a sort of anecdote, um, and because the book was written also in Turkey, I wrote a chapter, um, the, the chapter on domesticated animals, where I talk a lot about goats. I actually did write in Greece on an island totally inhabited by goats uh, well, and 40 people, but mostly goats. <laughs> Um, so I actually started with an anecdote more that sort of tied into the subject, hopefully the subject. Um, and I think I probably did try and structure a little bit. So you, you had a little bit of the science, a little bit of the here's how we know, and then more of a sort of fun discussion about what that means and, and how that's changed over time. Um, but I, I have to admit, I mostly just I started with my anecdote. I got through the science somehow and then tried very hard to bring it back to the anecdote. So that at least there was a point. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even sure that I managed that most of the time. Did you, what was the most challenging part of the book writing process? I think um, what, what sort of people refer to as voice is actually oh. um, quite challenging. So I, I think we sort of, we, we, uh, we were talking earlier about, you know, uh, my friends saying this sounds exactly like you. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I sort of I wonder if, you know, if I if I was just writing fiction or something and whether I'd ever be able to be the kind of writer who could change their voice, who could sort of, you know, um, do it, do a separate one. Because as a scientist, I've got two modes. I've got a very dry, boring, serious <laughs> science writing, you know, academic writing, which nobody wanted to read that book. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, so it was it was actually a little bit of a um, originally my editor um, was was told me that footnotes weren't allowed. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I said, you know, well, without footnotes, it's, it's a bit dry. <laughs> I mean, it's not totally dry, but it's, you know, there's a lot of science. I feel like people should get a break once in a while, yeah. you know, have some funny anecdotes about um, the Morris dancers in central Turkey or something. This is, you know, there are, there are fun stories to be told that aren't necessarily right in the middle of the, you know, uh, scientific discussion. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's quite a it's, it's quite a, a thing, and I, I guess that's something that writers sort of eventually have to figure out. Otherwise, you don't you don't get very far. But sort of what what I wanted to sort of sound like on the page, whether I was willing to sort of uh, make my very silly jokes, <laughs> <laughs> and you know just hope that someone laughs at them and it doesn't come off as you know sort of it doesn't go down like a lead balloon, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it doesn't. It works very well. Did did you enjoy the process? I really did. I think um, you know this is, I you know I was led off the the lead a little bit. Um, you know I was allowed to tell stories in my way. If I was writing this for. Um, you know, uh, a serious academic sort of way. I probably wouldn't have been able to make so many um, snarky side comments about the paleo no. diet. Yes. Um, that's, that's probably, yeah, just not, not allowed. Um, so Among actually, other things, I, not just the paleo yeah. diet. <laughs> yeah, the poor, yeah, I think, I think um, there's some, some people who, uh, I, I, we had disagreements about tent real estate on several projects. I think that that comes out and, the the poor yeah traffic jams with uh, tortoises and yes all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of terrible happenings but um, yeah no I think yeah so, it's quite, so you had a good time yeah very very um, I mean obviously it's quite high pressure 
Um, and, and I actually, I, I refused to, uh, take an advance of any sort or anything like that just oh. to save myself from some of the pressure. Really? Um, that was something, yeah, wow. everyone, everyone has a reaction. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So but, why? <laughs> uh, well, um, for one thing, it was actually financially. Uh, it, it's sort of you can you can either take an advance or um, negotiate a slightly better better percentage for yourself. Um, oh. I don't I don't have an agent or anything, so I've actually done this in a very strange, strange way. And because I didn't know any better, um, I just made my own choices. Yes, yeah, so sure. far. But um, the yeah, because they because I didn't take an advance, they were willing to offer me a little bit more on the, the sort of back end, which yes. means that um, I, you know I better sell books. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've made a terrible mistake. But um, <laughs> but hopefully, yeah, hopefully it sort of it, it took the pressure off of me to sort of deliver something for someone. I didn't feel like the sort of publisher owned it. I mean, yeah. they, they did, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I did feel like it's, you know, I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it for my, you know, uh, royalties, not not to make up uh, sure, <laughs> a debt I of money that I've taken. So I think, I think that was actually, for me, that worked out really well. Yeah. Well, uh, congratulations on the book. I have no doubt it will do well. Uh, who knew? Teeth and cities. Uh, but uh, fascinating read. And um, thank you so much for talking to, talking to us today, Brenna. Thanks so much for having me. So there you go. Brenna Hassett. That's just so interesting. I just, like you listen to that and you realize that there's, you know, there's books, interesting narratives mm. in so mm. many different subjects. So and I just different. think it's amazing that she's, that she's, um, you know, brought that passion of hers mm. to life for other people. I think it's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So anyway, let's move on to, we have a question from a listener. We do. And yes, the question is from Jenny Lee. And Jenny says, what does an author platform look like? I know what it contains, but I need to know what the format looks like so I can be professional when contacting an agent. Please help. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. Why don't you take that out? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Val. It's very kind of you to throw that at me. Um, look, I, I think it's quite an issue. I, 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 uh, like you kind of look at that on face value and you think you kind of, you know, raise your eyebrows a little bit and think, what do you mean? Like it's surely, mm. you know, like what does an author platform look like if you know what it contains and all that sort of stuff. But then I thought about it and I thought, no, actually, that's a really, really good question, particularly for a new writer. Do you need to list, you know, I've got Twitter with 5,000 followers. I've got Instagram with 2,000 followers. You know, do you need to list all that in an in a letter, a query letter to an agent, do you need to actually, you know, show them word for word what your platform looks like? Um, so I can see why uh, why Jenny is actually, you know, asking the question. Um, so I think it's one of those things where the uh, I we always say that you start your platform with a website, like that's your calling card on the internet. And so my um, my thinking on that is that I wouldn't be listing every single thing, unless I was writing nonfiction. If I was writing nonfiction and the numbers, the size of my platform is actually quite important with nonfiction, um, there's, mm. I wouldn't be listing them in a, 
in, in a query letter, I would simply be putting my website details at the bottom of my signature or somewhere within my uh, in my query letter. Because mm. if you do that, most query letters these days are digital. You're, you know, you're sending a document via email. The yeah. agent is just going to click on that website and he's going to have a look at what you have. And then on your website, you've probably got what well, you should do have, you know, um, little uh, social media icons to your Instagram, your Twitter, your Facebook or whatever it is that you have um, as part of your platform um, and they're going to have a look at those or they're just going to Google you, which would be the other thing that they will do, which will bring up your um, – bring up whatever it is the first thing that uh, that comes up under your name, which, of course, we've regularly talked about is you want that to be your website because yep, that's yep. where you control the message of, you know, what yep. – what the agent is seeing. So so that was kind of my, I mean, I don't know, Val, is, would you do something different to that? I think it depends on how good your author platform is. Because right. if you've actually got a really, really, really powerful author platform already because you've been working hard at it and you've been building uh, a community or a fan base, hey, shout it from the rooftops and list them and, you know, and and do whatever it takes to help you get over the line. So if you've yeah. actually got a good one, I don't think it hurts to, to go on about it. Mm. I think that you're right, though, in that I'm not sure that the query letter is necessarily the place that's essential unless you've got a massive one that is going to, you know, entice them to find out more yeah. about you. Yeah, um, if you've got anyway. a million Instagram followers, yeah, yeah throw that in your query letter, yeah. <laughs> But otherwise, but if you're normal, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure whether the query letter is the right spot, but certainly, um, I think that uh, a lot of book proposals these days, some publishers actually ask for it, so they actually want you to list your yeah. your Twitter following and all of that. So uh, if whether or not they do, if you do have an author platform, if you're at proposal stage, then Which I think you should be. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, for nonfiction, sorry. Yeah. Um, you should definitely be listing it because um, they're going to want to know, quite frankly. And anything that you can do to show that you have some kind of fan base, particularly with nonfiction, is, is going to help get you over the line. And mm. That's not just listing the number of followers. Your author platform on social media, if you're going to talk about your author platform at proposal stage, then you should be talking about where where you reach, where you can reach in your community. So, for example, if you are writing a, a nonfiction book about – you pick a topic, Al, pick any topic. So this is just completely fresh for me. Uh <laughs> <laughs> mm, forensic accounting. Okay, thanks, Al. So Any if you're time. writing a, a nonfiction book about forensic accounting, sure, you might list all of your uh, followers, etc., on social media. But you would also say, I'm also a member of, or or a director of, or a chairman of, or chairperson of, or whatever, the Australian Forensic Accounting Association. And I regularly speak at their events. So that mm. would be a place that I would be promoting my book. Or mm. I'm on the audit committee of fraud in forensic accounting in the manufacturing industry. And I, am, I have a regular column in their newsletter. So you would also talk about where all your tentacles stretch in that particular 
you know, uh, industry where there are likely to be readers or, or prospective readers of your book. So it's not just about social media following. It's it's about the wider network of that your platform can reach. So you would do that for nonfiction, but what about for fiction? Would you put that stuff in your query letter for fiction if you were? Um, so would you put your memberships for to say say to you know as a children's author to Squibby and the CBCA and those sorts? Of, would you put memberships and things like that in your query letter? Um, see, I, I with fiction, it it tends to be more about you know the words they want it, but they want to see, but but. But mm. they want to see that you do have that stuff. Like it is still important, but it's not necessarily mm. – um, I don't know that I would necessarily be listing all of those things in a paragraph in the query letter. I would no. definitely have my website on there and I would yes. mention – you know, I would talk about the fact in my query letter that I am – that you are active on social – that you that you have that stuff in place. Like it's there, but it, you don't necessarily have to list the numbers and all of that sort of yeah. thing at this stage, not in your query letter to an agent. Not, a query, not, not in but, query letter stuff. Stage. Get that website in there. Like, make sure that they have got links mm. to follow and places to go to have a look at what what it is that you're doing, um, because it, at the end of the day, you know, it, it, we've a lot of the different um, publishers and things we've talked about in the past. They do look. They are looking to see. You have to be able to help sell your own books, and it's just that's the way yep. of that's just the way it is now, basically. Yep. Yep. Mm. Great. Well, hopefully that's helpful to you, Jenny. Hmm. All right. So we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What have you got coming up in the coming week? Well, I'm going to get over my second novel syndrome and finish my edit because (laughs) that's due this week. So, you know, like that's the thing. Like you can have all the self-doubt and you can have all the procrastination in the world, but at the end of the day you have a deadline and you get it done. So that's what I'm going to be doing, getting it done. What about you, Valerie? What are you doing? What am I doing? Um, I'm interviewing a number of authors, but I'm also running a session at Mama Creatives. Oh, I saw uh, that. What are you going to be doing there? Yeah. Well, it's a masterclass on seven seven steps on how to build your profile if you're creative. So Hmm. that should be fun because I think it's going to be a really interesting group. And yeah. um, hopefully everyone will leave with lots of ideas on how they can build their profile if they're a creative. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so that's going to be good. Good uh, job. And apart from that, you know, just the usual. Yeah, the usual. So <laughs> tying where knots. do we find you? <laughs> tying knots as well, yes. Where oh. do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, feel free to connect with uh, um, me on Facebook and uh, – Make sure you check out the show notes if you want to look up any of the links that we've discussed in this episode. You'll find them at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.